Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to the podcast. It's episode 454 for August 17th, 2022. My guest today is Damon Baker. You'll learn more about him in a minute, but he is the founder and CEO of the firm Lean Focus. He is also a private equity partner at Coltala Holdings. So if you want to learn more about Damon and his affiliations and his work and more, look for links in the show notes or you can go to leanblog.org slash 454. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Damon Baker. He is the founder and CEO of the firm Lean Focus. He's also a private equity partner at Coltala Holdings. So Damon has been implementing lean practices in various uh, general manager and VP level capacities for more than 25 years. But it was at Danaher, a company I'm sure a lot of you or hopefully most of you have heard of, uh, where he worked for nine years. It was there that his passion uh, for what we might consider to be true business transformation was really born. So he was instrumental in developing Danaher's company-wide problem-solving process. He was inspired to create a new comprehensive business system that enables organizations to improve on all fronts. So Damon has worked uh, in a Shingo prize-winning facility. He's a Shingo prize examiner. And over his career, um, Damon's demonstrated hands-on leadership and facilitation of more than 500 Kaizen events in almost 100 major corporations in 16 different countries. So with all that, I know we're going to have a great conversation here today, Damon. How are you? Great, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Really excited to uh, to talk with you today and, and to learn from you. And, you know, before we talk about some of these issues of, you know, what, what is a business system and, and, and problem solving and things like that, I'll ask you a question for context. I like to ask a lot of my guests, you know, how did you first get introduced to any of this, whether you would frame it as Toyota production system or lean, like what was the, what was the context and the circumstances for you? Oh, it's a great question. So, um, my lean history, my lean pedigree, if you will, dates back to, I would say, around 1996, 97, somewhere in there. I was two years out of high school, and I was working in a cabinet factory while going to school at night at a local community college and had an instructor that uh, incorporated some lean training into some of his courses and that piqued my interest. And I was a little bit of a reader at the time. So I was, uh, I had already read like the goal, but I didn't know that many of the principles inside of it were lean principles. And uh, I really enjoyed that book because it was written more like uh, a narrative, a novel than more of a, a technical manual. So I say that was probably the first thing that got me hooked. And then uh, I learned about Toyota and my night classes. And then I started to, to, purchase books about the Toyota production system. In fact, the uh, Taichi Ono translated Toyota production system book was probably my first TPS book that I remember reading. Uh, And then back to the cabinet factory. So the cabinet factory was doing what I would say very basic blocking and tackling lean uh, events, you know, 5S, a little bit of standard work, organization flow and things like that. We, you know, back then, we didn't have the the terminology and the jargon and and many of the world didn't either to know what it was we were doing and how it all fit together. But 
it just made sense and clicked in my head. And thankfully, I, I started out in a company that was already thinking that way. So maybe to some degree, I was spoiled a little bit and that I didn't have a bad experience first to you know kind of turn me off to you know why lean doesn't work. So it was kind of the opposite thing. But from there, I was just, you know, I, I sought out companies and, and obviously uh, strategy, companies with strategies that really embrace this kind of thinking from that point forward because I was a believer myself. But yeah. And so what, your role, were you uh, like frontline team member there in that cabinet factory? So I, no, I started as an hourly associate. So I was building checkout lanes, I was building conveyor belts, building cabinets and things like that. And uh, I was promoted during my time there to be a uh, uh, basically like the shop floor foreman, if you will. So I was like an hourly supervisor. So I led a, a team of probably about 15 to you know, in, in, in peak seasonal times, 30 people and um, building, you know, checkout lanes for stores like Aldi Foods and, and Best Buy and things like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, we got to design our workforce and it was kind of the cool thing about it was it wasn't continuous manufacturing like you can imagine the products going down an assembly line today so it's very project oriented so you, you had to set up each project efficiently in order to do it well and then tear it down and then run another project set it up efficiently to do it well and then you may go back to that other project or you may not so a lot of times you got one chance to sort of set up this efficient flow and and, uh, and run it that way and that's that's where we started incorporating a lot of these these principles tools and techniques yeah. Well, it's great to hear that you, I mean, you know, as you, I think you said you didn't have a bad experience, but I think that's part of our goal is to help people have good experiences with lean. I'm reminded um, uh, one time I had a chance to talk, not on this podcast, but Jamie Benini, you know, uh, Toyota and the TSSC group, he said pretty bluntly, I think he said this at the conference, that if, you, if you're quote unquote implementing lean or TPS in a company and the employees are unhappy, you're, that's not really TPS. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, what, I mean, like, what were the benefits that that you saw or maybe more broadly? Like we want lean to be a good experience for production associates, supervisors. What what does that mean to them? Yeah. You know, I, I don't think I had that pretty typical experience where somebody from the outside or from another layer of leadership came down and told us how what we were doing was wrong and that we needed to do it in a new way. So I, I liken it to like, Mark, Mark goes out to dinner with his, with his spouse. And then when he comes home, we rearrange his kitchen and we're very proud to show Mark the new layout and go, Surprise. Like, don't, don't you love this? Isn't this fantastic? We use lean principles. We did a Kaizen and it's great. Right. And mm-hmm. you're like, uh, get out of here <laughs> before I call the police. So, right, so yeah. I mean, a lot, like Kaizen, yeah, a, lot, I mean, a lot of Kaizen happens that way. It's, it's two people versus with and four people. So we, we really miss out on, that respect for the individual that's so key in what, what makes this, this go and be successful. So um, did I experience that later in my career? Absolutely. Uh, I was on the receiving end of it and I was on the giving end of it, to be honest, you know, you, you learn through mistakes, but um, you know, you kind of, that is one of the core principles that you just need to keep with you for the rest of your life. And it's just, remember, it's like all of us are all for change until the changes are changed. Yeah. Right. So. right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the key, you know, engaging people, like you said, and a lot of people say, are we doing it to them for them or with them? Like doing it for them might be well-intended, but still not engaging them. 
Yeah. You know, and that's, that's, that's not um, the most respectful or the most effective way to, to go about any of this change. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, so going, you know, going back to books and thinking about your starting point, um, you could do a lot worse than a Taiichi Ono book is a, is a starting point, you know, and, and there's imagine, I think a lot of people who maybe don't get exposed to that, they don't pick it up. There are so many books. If you go search Amazon for a book about lean, you probably wouldn't find the goal coming up as a search result. They may, may show up in that strip of like people also bought, you know, we, yeah. we, we can yeah. talk about that maybe, but there's a lot. I mean, there are a lot of random generic Lean Six Sigma books that I think would be an awful introduction to Lean. In Agreed. And, and I think I've read a lot of them. <laughs> so, so at some point, like you start, you get like 10 pages deep and you're like, I'm done, you know, it, because, you know, philosophically you disagree or it's, it's just a repackaging of something that was done years you know, before. Um, but, you know, there's, there's some ones that really stuck with me and, you know, I, I don't want to make the, the whole podcast about like, you know, our, our book list, but um, the, the one that really stuck with me that I felt like I, I read it and I could go do some damage in a good way was Gemba Kaizen. Mm, mm-hmm. And and it was just like, uh, and I think I, I got, I think I picked that up at H&I Corporation as part of the onboarding. Everybody got a copy. And I remember just paging through that thing. I had the highlighter, I dog-eared the pages and it, it was the one book that I could say, you know, had dirty fingerprints all over it because I just flipped back and look, look at it many times. Um, and there are a few others, but that one really sticks out in my mind. Masaki am I, and, and, yeah. and there's a, a second updated edition of that book that came out um, a couple of years ago. He's still active and working and, and traveling the world and still writing. So um, again, like, you know, there, there's that more direct lineage from Masaki Mai, who translated for Taiichi Ono, learned from Taiichi Ono. You know, he wasn't a direct Toyota insider, but he was very close. And, you know, there's that question. Let me, let me ask, a, you know, kind of a question related to that. Like when you look at different candidates for a job or, you know, uh, how, how, how do you look at, like, what are different dimensions that you look at or somebody should look at in terms of lineage? Where have they worked? What, what have they read? Who have they learned from? How, how important are those things? Yeah. I mean, they definitely are important, but I think what you can't be is a, is a lazy recruiter and a lazy interviewer. And I think even our, in our recruiting practice, which is a, a big part of what we do, sometimes prospective clients will say something like, just find me somebody from XYZ company that knows how to do the XYZ business system. And just because somebody worked at a place does not in any way mean that they're expert at applying those tools. Uh, and, and sort of the, the analogy I make is there's, there's really like four personas associated with a business system. So there's, there's architects. So if you sat them down, they could take out a sheet of paper and design a business system for a company looking at that business and who they serve and whether they manufacture or they're service oriented because they've seen enough of it that they could tailor make it for you and they could give you the blueprints for it. So those people are very, very skilled, right? Not a lot of them around. Then there's builders. So they can take the plans, right? And then they can go install that system inside of the company 
right? But the, the plans were not developed by them. So they're more of like the blue collar doers. And then a level below that are what I call tradespeople. So think in building a house, you've got plumbers, you've got you know roofers, you've got electricians, they're specialists. So inside of a business system, you can't be expert at all of these things. You know, some would say we're expert at the DBS system. That's nonsense because there's, you know, close to a hundred different tools inside of it. So within that toolbox, there are specialists. Are you a growth oriented practitioner that knows how to do front end continuous improvement tools? Or are you more shop floor SQDC focused, right? And then the, the last tier, um, and, and, and these aren't like, you know, I'm not saying that one's positive or negative or another is kind of the way it is, are, are the homeowners, the people who use the house, right? So inside of a company, there are people who use the system, but they couldn't facilitate, teach, install, or architect any of it. So when we interview people, we're trying to figure that out. Like, who are you? And you can be several depending on your career trajectory and what you've done and the things that you've accomplished. Um, but that's what we really try to tease out of people. Uh, just because you've been at some great place that's well-known, you got to dig a layer deeper. So it's, it, I think that more as like it's table stakes to get people into the, the, the conversation, then you dig deeper into that. Um, but then you look at some resume, resumes and you go, well, geez, they've never been at a place. Do I, do I toss it aside? You can make mistakes in that regard too, because you don't mm -hmm. know yeah. somebody's history. Like mm -hmm. how, who did they learn from? What did they read? What experiences did they have? Mm -hmm. You know, all those kinds of things play into it. So uh, I wish there were some easy way to, to say it's, it's always yeah. these type of people from this place, but there are some, some real hidden gems that mm -hmm. uh, you just wouldn't expect by yeah. just digging in and asking the right questions. So so to recap the the key point in the headline, don't be lazy about it. Do the work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, even uh, a company that you might not think of as a, a lean company could have a handful of people that really, you know, deeply embrace different lean philosophies where it might be hard to find people who, who really embrace that, but it's not a natural fit where they're currently working. Right. So there might yeah. be some people then that really get unleashed. Uh, uh, yeah, by 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 a different environment and different leadership. Yeah, the, the way I describe that is is taking the saltwater fish out of the saltwater tank and putting them in, or you know, out of the freshwater tank and putting them back into the saltwater tank. Yeah, <laughs> putting yeah. putting them in the right environment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to make a different fish analogy. If you talk about somebody who's only worked at, let's say, uh, Toyota, or only worked in a Danaher business, it was a, a mature Danaher business business system company. What's well, the, the the old expression that the fish couldn't, I mean, fish can't talk, but the fish couldn't explain the water that's in the bowl around them. It's just, it is, right? It's yeah. just, they take it for granted. It sustains them. It's it. But how would you explain that to a dog? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting feedback. You know, we, we did try to recruit some people from Toyota within Danaher, and this is in no means a slight uh, against these people or Toyota or their experience or anything like that, but uh, they came in and they were trying to implement a version of TPS and, and, you know, we really had 40 different companies inside of Danaher that were completely different product lines and markets and customers and things like that. So you couldn't take a version of TPS for automotive and come in and copy and paste it. 
And when it didn't work, it's like, what do you fall back on if that was your experience? So you didn't have all the repetitions looking at all these different situations of applying these concepts and tools. So they were like a fish out of water. So I think probably they were in a friendly environment culturally, like problem solving and support from leadership and things like that. But when they would run into an impasse and it's like, geez, well, that that's that is different than I've seen. I don't know what to do next. And, you know, the machine sort of starts smoking. So, yeah. yeah. So we're going to come back to this in a minute. The, 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 the difference, the two letters that are different between TPS and DBS. But before getting into that, I mean, the other thing you, you made me think of was, you know, you talk about starting your career. There, there's learning, right? There's learning lean or however you're going to frame it. Somebody comes right out of college into, let's say, a, a Dana or her business or some other company. Uh, there's a lot to learn. There's less to unlearn. Like I remember, you know, General Motors, I started my career there in 1995. I was young and impressionable and was ready to learn from the people there with TPS backgrounds. That's a totally different perspective than someone who has spent 35 years not only working in, but succeeding professionally in the old environment. Like at some point, I don't know where you reach a point where it's <sighs> impossible to unlearn certain things. And, th- and that's what we're dealing with, you know, uh, across different organizations, different industries, different leaders. But I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts on that. Like, you know, learning it to begin with versus trying to help someone unlearn it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny as, as pro change and as pro improvement as lean consultants um, so, so say that they are and, and that their clients should be, we are probably the most rigid and inflexible people <laughs> in the world, right? You know, if somebody puts out something new in the lean community, the first thing we do is say like, it's garbage and, you know, you, you should be doing it the old way or that kind of thing. So yeah. we're, we're less, less willing to explore new ideas. And, and is, that's not a phenomenon unique to lean practitioners. That's just humanity in, in general. Sure. It's like the sure. longer we're on this planet, the more we think we've known and mastered. Mm. And it's, you know, I think the first battle you win every day is with yourself and recognizing that um, I haven't seen or learned or mastered everything. And how do I approach what I do with this beginner's mindset all the time? Now, you know, it's a little danger of doing that in consulting because you don't want to show up at the client and go like, well, I don't know. What do you think? You know, it's like, <laughs> let's figure this out together. It's like, well, why did I hire you then? Yeah. So, so yeah. it's a balance. Um, but I think, you know, even, you know, I'm 25 plus years into this and it's like every single time I teach something, facilitate something, I take something new away. And, and maybe it's not a technical feature of it, but it's maybe a better way to deal with a people situation or how to get followership or, you know, something Um, it's, are you continually reflecting on the way you do it? And could you be doing it better um, that point forward? That's to me, the spirit of the culture we're trying to build in the company, isn't it? Like every day, a little, a little better. And well, the company is an inanimate object. If the people inside of it don't, subscribe to that, then the company can never subscribe to that because it's just the sum of the total parts. So how do you find people in your organization that truly approach the world that way? They're out there. There's a lot of them out there, to be quite honest. And and when you surround yourself with a lot of those kinds of people in a company, it's pretty powerful stuff. 
because egos wash away. Uh, your willingness to entertain new ideas and thoughts, you know, open up all those kinds of things. It's when you think you've mastered the universe that's in trouble. You know, you, you start thinking we have no problems. We've figured it all out. So we could probably make another podcast of companies that went out of business because of the culture from the top that uh, really espoused that belief. Yeah. Yeah. And then those are some really powerful points. And it can be a struggle sometimes to try to find balance, right? So, you know, I think people in more recent years, you know, uh, if we were trying to coach problem solving and people talk about, you know, leading by asking questions, don't give people answers. Yeah. But then to your point, if you take that to an extreme, you might get thrown out the door as a consultant. I think I just, I'm going to, I don't know if I take credit for this. This is my Friday afternoon brain. Can't help it. You know, the old joke about, you know, the, uh, client asks the consultant what time it is, and the consultant says, "Hey, let me borrow your watch." Yeah. Something like that, right? Yeah. So maybe the extension of that is the lean consultant would ask, well, "What problem are you trying to solve by knowing what time it is?" Or something obnoxious like that. I don't know, but we have to be careful, huh? Yeah, I, I think the the danger is in following anything exactly to the letter, which is also a contradiction and a paradox to what we teach, which is follow the standard. Um, so when you follow the standard, sometimes that replaces thought, right? So you don't say, well, uh, you know, you go into a situation, an airline counter and it says, well, here's how I'm supposed to respond to the situation. And, and, you know, they forget that there's a human being in front of them and that actually use some common sense and some empathy from time to time to figure things out and maybe make the right decision regardless of what the playbook says. So, you know, things like I should use the Socratic method each and every time I'm, you know, practicing lean, I think is, is not doing the world any justice. It's like, do, do we really want to ask the the force behind us like hey do you think we should charge that hill is this a good idea you know as the bombs are flying yeah. well, i don't know what do you think let's talk about it let's do a hansei yeah. session and <laughs> so sometimes you have to yeah. make decisive decision well there, there there might be a balance and i i don't have any experience in the the military but um i think of general McChrystal's book, Team of Teams, and talking about commander's intent. So maybe there's balance to be found if a leader says, or even a consultant says, we need to do this and here's why. Now let's figure out together how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that can be a, you know, a, a helpful balance, maybe. For sure. Again, yeah, buy in, followership, ownership, all those things is what you're after. Because when you leave, you want them to think it was a good idea and continue mm -hmm. that behavior. Yeah. Um, and again, maybe back to something you said earlier, um, if they're having a good experience with lean, if it's helpful to them, um, then, then they're more likely to, to go with it and to make it their own and to, um, sustain things. But, you know, you, you bring up this important point, you know, about, about standards, like how, how standardized is standardized, you know, like I think of like, here's a healthcare environment. You could have standard work, standardized work that says the person at the front desk, um, should promptly greet the person who walks in and do so in a friendly way. Like you don't have to script the exact words yeah. like to make it robotic, you know? So what, what are the important things that, what are the important standards that affect safety or quality or other important dimensions? We, we can figure that out. And then it's attributed to Ono or MI without standards, there can be no Kaizen. The idea that the standard shouldn't be carved in stone. Yeah. Right. Agree wholeheartedly and you know, creating a mechanism for 
for people to uh, elevate and um, communicate where they think there's an opportunity to improve upon the standard, which oftentimes there isn't. It's like they're just sort of put into a situation where they kind of just have to deal with it and and their voice isn't heard or changes aren't made. And then people get discouraged and fall back on, well, this is the way we've always done it here. Yeah. So I want to come back to that question again, you know, kind of interconnected questions and, and maybe there's an interconnected answer or you can talk about, you know, one at a time, your choice. But again, the difference between TPS, Toyota Production System, to Danaher Business System, why yeah. the language business system? How is that different or better or more appropriate for Danaher? And then maybe this is an easier one to answer. Why well, call it a Danaher something instead of the Toyota something? Yeah. So um, I probably wouldn't be doing the Toyota alums any justice by um, making an assumption as to what's inside of TPS. Because what I don't know is, uh, you know, you might ask some Toyota people say, look, well, TPS is inclusive of other things that we do outside of the factories as well. We just happen to call it TPS because I've run into some ex-Toyota people that say, yeah, we do TPS in sales and marketing and we just call it TPS. Like we don't have, you know, it's not the Toyota business system. So, so I won't make any assumptions about what, whether one is more complete over the other. You know, the one I, that I can speak to is obviously one I had some experience with. So, um, you know, the, the origins of it and all this is documented online. So you can read it in books that Art Byrne and, and George Konisaker have written. And, uh, Mark Deluzio from Lean Horizons has posted about. So it started off as the Danaher production system. In, in the late 80s, early 90s with Jacob's Vehicle System, which was the first place they did the, the first lean conversion with, with the group from Shigejitsu with Nikau. So, so it was referred to as a Danaher production system and because they didn't know of, know of any other ways that this could apply outside of the four walls of a factory. So it was a very production-oriented thing, right? So it was, it was over time that it became the business system when they started to understand concepts like strategy deployment or Hoshin Connery. We called it policy deployment at, at Danaher. Uh, and then we started making acquisitions um, like Fluke, which was one of the acquisitions, I think, early 2000, which, which Larry Culp actually was the president of for a while. And they brought with them as part of the acquisition, a lot of different commercial front end tools that they were using, like voice of customer, segmentation, um, some, some what we would know today as lean product development tools that would apply to, to R&D. And we're like, wow, well, like they're doing a great job on, on marketing and, and sales and things like that. And, and, and product lifecycle management was another area they were really good at. So then those things got adopted into Danner production system and then became this collection of tools that could be applied outside of just the functions of operations, right? And it slowly grew over time. So it's like applying Kaizen to the business system itself. And even to this day, it continues to be evolved and improved and added to and refined and enhanced. So it is this comprehensive set of interconnected tools and systems. If you think about, you know, P&L and all the people inside of a company you know, the factory is only this portion of it, right? It's the direct labor. It's, you know, the, the cogs and this kind of thing. Well, 
What about SGNA? What about finance? What about marketing and sales and all these kinds of things? There wasn't a toolbox for that. And in most companies, there isn't a system for that. Or there is, but they don't think of them as being connected, which is right. So it's bringing that all together and, and really viewing all of those seemingly separate functions as interconnected process boxes on a value stream map that need to deliver value to a customer at the end. And how do you compress that over time using these various tools? And, and that's really the idea behind it. And I think uh, a lot of companies haven't made that connection, right? Maybe it's because of the jargon and the history and the bad taste that they've had in the past. But um, when they hear you know, lean, they, they automatically jump to this is, oh, this is lean manufacturing. This is automotive. This is whatever. So um, calling something a business system too, I think, uh, gives you a feeling that it's yours. This is our culture, right? It's not just our tools. It's our culture. It's our way of working. It's our values, our systems, our principles. Uh, we had a joke that, you know, it was, DBS was a noun. It was a verb. It was, a, it was an adjective. <laughs> you you uh, could acquire a company and DBS it. Yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. we said. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it, it just became how we worked, honestly, at the end of the day. And, and mm-hmm. it was the thing that shaped um, all of the, the decisions, you know, as a company yeah. strategically. Well, and there's, um, yeah, there's so many um, great points you made there. Back to, yeah, what you said earlier, uh, it it might not be more complete, but maybe calling it business system is just a a more fitting name for one organization um, compared to another. Um, Yeah, I mean, you're you're hearing the words and and you're in sales and and somebody says DPS, Dan, her production system, you're like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I'll keep selling (laughs) where, you know. Yeah. But it's funny how people, I mean, people like to fixate on how we're different. It's starting in manufacturing, right? You know, we don't, we don't build yeah. cars. What we build is more complex or what we yeah. build is a continuous flow of uh, something or, you know, then you know, of course it happens um, in healthcare, but you know, there, I, I would have loved, I would love to go back in time. This would be the worst use of a time machine, but to go back to a moment at Toyota where somebody was trying to explain let's say Jadoka and concepts from the loom business yeah, we don't build into, machines. <laughs> into Toyota's new car business. And yeah. somebody might say, look, we, we don't build looms. These are much more complicated, but they, if, if that ever happened, they got past it. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I hope there's an opportunity for others, but you know, earlier you talked about that um, first company you worked at not having a bad experience, maybe, you know, a name for something like this in a company, like this is a low bar. It shouldn't be off-putting whatever phrase it is, right? I and mean, there were some in healthcare who used the phrase production system. And I always kind of cringe and think, I don't know if you're really doing yourself any favors. You, you may be wanting to honor the Toyota people you've learned from, but you could call it a care system. You could, there's all kinds of things you could call it. You could yeah. call it a management system, an operating system. Yeah, there's some common fallacies there too. Like uh, you also hear like program, like this is our program, which sort of, you know, the, the semantics of that implies that there's a start and an end, which, you know, it should obviously have an end. Or implementation has the same connotation, right? Yeah, 100%. So, let the, so when we talk about words and like, you know, calling something a business system or the, the X company, whatever system like that, that in a way that's internal marketing. 
So maybe just a bridge to, um, you know, something you've said, and I want to hear your thoughts on uh, that the lean community has a marketing problem. Why is that? And how do you define that problem? Yeah. So at the risk of being controversial, I guess. Um, Please so do. That's going to be good for listeners. Yeah. So, you know, we, we interview literally thousands of people a year through our, our search practice. Um, and that's not a, a, an overestimation. It's, you know, it's thousands. <laughs> and and uh, when you interview people, you, you obviously you're asking questions to understand their breadth of experience and, and will they be able to go in and affect change in an organization and, and implement something that the CEO will, will care about and, and listen to and lean into. Right. So when I, when you launch a product or a service, you are designing that product or service for a customer. What's the problem that this product or service solves? What pain does that customer have today? And how does this product or service solve that pain? And then you design your product or service around that, your marketing messaging and your branding around it and your selling process all around that. And I think everybody understands that. It's like, yeah, that totally makes sense. So, a CI person in effect is like selling a product and the product is lean. I'm trying to sell the organization that lean or a business system, whatever terminology you want to use is something we need to be doing as a company. And I have customers inside of my organization that I need to sell that idea to. And in order to do that effectively, I need to understand just like normal customers, what are their pain points? What are their hopes? What are their fears? What are they? problems do will this solve and that kind of thing and then change the delivery of my message based on who that focus group is or who that persona is inside your organization so uh, i'll give you an example where like i'm marketing a message you've ever seen this like people send you a spam email like hey do you want to buy some staples and you're like i don't use any staples <laughs> so you just delete those messages because you don't care. It's not solving a problem. So a lot of CI people walk in an organization and go, we need to create a bunch of black belts, black belts, black belts, black belts. And then they, they advertise that to every level of the organization. It's about black belts, black belts. And the CEO is going, I care about sustained profitable growth. Mm-hmm. I care about social responsibility. Like these are what's on the agenda of the CEO. And it's going to be different by yeah. CEO, but right. you know, most of the times sustained profitable growth will be on every CEO's <laughs> Agenda. I mean, some some right. will look and for that, this. Some will look for hitting this quarter's numbers, but you know, I mean, hopefully, they're looking for sustained, long-term growth, right? Yeah. So, you know, how do you tailor your messaging to deliver a message that shows how these things help to solve those problems? And it's it's a hard thing to do if you yourself don't understand the mechanics of what it is that they're trying to do. So, P and L understanding. Uh, when we interview a lot of CI people, this is a huge gap in the CI communities. They, they can't read a P&L. They can't tell you how this tool impacts the financials. You know, talk to me about working capital improvement. Which tool? Which tools in the toolbox would you use to drive working capital improvement in the business? And then they'd say, "Well, what's working capital improvement?" Right. So, um, so that's what I mean. Is and and you know, a lot of times it's like. These, these conferences and these seminars are like echo chambers. You know, the CI leaders, are, you know, it's not CEOs going there. It's, it's mostly CI professionals going there. 
And if the messaging in those conferences were aimed at the stakeholder groups that we're trying to drive change through inside of a company, then there may be more of those types of people going. So where are they going? You know, where, what conferences are CEOs going to? What conferences are CHROs going to and CFOs going to? Um, they're probably listening to topics that are near and dear to their heart. We can also ask what podcasts are they listening to? Yeah. Who are we listening Hopefully they're listening to this one though, Mark. But you know, who 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 are we reaching and, and what are we saying? I mean, I think you know the same question would uh would apply here. But yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes a conference feels more like a pep rally and everyone's already on the team, or yeah. you know, like why yeah, it's, a good it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, it's an empathy session where we're commiserating with one another about, you know, the challenges we're having in our organization. Meanwhile, the people we're talking about are thousands of miles away. Yeah. Yeah. So let's say you were on stage at a, a, a conference. You've just given a talk. You're on a panel. Ooh, well, what, that's not, you don't like doing that or, or were oh, you just it's worried scary. About I, I was imagining that and I got scared. <laughs> um. But so here's a question I hear a lot at conferences, and I think when I've moderated panels, it always you know the form of this question always gets submitted, and I, I bet you'll have a insightful, uh, good answer to that. So to that point of commiserating, or you know, people are saying like, oh, you know, our CEO, our CEO isn't interested in lean, our CEO isn't on board, our CEO doesn't buy in. What would you, what would your advice be? I answer the same way every single time, and usually they say our, our CEO isn't buying in. And I go, what are you selling? It's back to our, our conversation we just, we just finished up there. It's like, what are you selling and how are you selling it? Talk to me about you know, what conversations you've had, you know, how you've delivered that message. And usually 99 times out of 100, I find that more of the responsibility falls on the person that's doing the commiserating versus the person we're talking about. And, and it's a hard bar, right? And part of that too is sort of the mindset I had beat into me maybe early on in my life is um, controllable versus uncontrollable. Like control what you can control, right? And always go back to like, okay, how do I need to change the way that I'm delivering this message so that I can get the right points across and resonate with people? And don't be afraid to ask that person that you're trying to influence Am I missing the target? And you know what would help me to get this target across this this message across to you better? Now there's there's a there's a point when you've got to also understand when uh, you're hitting the, the law of diminishing returns, right? So there are some people in some organizations, um, and I've seen many of them that no amount of great messaging and hitting all the you know, the points that they care about will make a difference because just they are who they are. And those are situations you should probably remove yourself from or put up with if you so chose. Yeah. Yeah. There's that, there, yeah, there's that choice. And and back to that point of can somebody unlearn their, their, their knowledge, what they're convinced of their mindsets, their experiences. I think let's say, you know, John Toussaint who had been, you know, a CEO in healthcare, was a lean zealot, if you will, and, and and really drove, you know, culture change. And 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 he, I appreciate the humility, where John will tell people, it's like, look, I, you know, he, he didn't always think this way. He was a he had great mentors, people who can't like George Koenigsegger, the name that yep. you've already mentioned, 
that John had great mentors, but you know, I'll give John infinite amount of credit that he was willing to put aside old behaviors, old mindsets. Like he changed. He wasn't someone who came in new to healthcare, learning from all these people. And then, okay, well then someday I can apply this as CEO. He had already been CEO or he'd been CMO. I think he became CEO and then launched all this, but either way, like he showed that ability to change. And like you said, some people don't have that in them. Yeah. And you can, you can usually pick up on it in the first 30 minutes of talking with somebody. It's how many questions do they ask of you versus Mm. how much talking they do at you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, but um, I was going to ask one of a follow-up question, you know, in, in the different ways that you and Lean Focus or in, in private equity interact with different CEOs. I mean, how many, what percentage of CEOs are a quote-unquote lean zealot to the order of, let's say, an art burn or even aspiring to be that if they're not an art burn? Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's realistically, it's probably single digits. You know, we're talking art burn, Larry Culp, uh, you know, level of of engagement. And, um, I think there's a lot of factors at play. One of which you've already mentioned, which is, uh, when you take a person who's been successful and they've been rewarded with roles and compensation and adulation and all these kinds of things. And now they've reached the pinnacle of their profession and they're running a publicly traded company and they're the CEO. Uh, there is this, um, tricky thing that happens inside your head is you know, the, the, the more, the, the more levels you move up, the, the opposite of what you think would be true happens. You get less feedback from others, the higher you move up in an organization. When you're a middle manager, oh my gosh, you've got 17 development plans and 360s going on. But when you're a CEO, uh, people are less willing to come to you and tell you what they think of your performance. And your boss is really the board and shareholders. Right. And they let you hear it. But, you know, the tens of thousands of employees are oftentimes too afraid to tell you what you need to hear. So if you're not hearing feedback, you you fill the void in with, well, I must be doing everything great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Therefore, I need to just keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, like in, in any business, you would say a lack of complaints does not mean you're high quality. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I think what separates guys like Art Byrne, Larry and, and others is no matter what level they've reached in their career, they've never allowed that fatal mistake to happen. They've always grounded themselves in reality. They've always asked for opinions of, of things and worked collaboratively. And they've never thought of themselves as being above doing any of the work required uh, at any level. Um, so, so that's, you know, again, we're talking about single digit percent of people as their special traits of, of people. Um, so yeah, in our practice, you know, it's, it's great when we run into those people because it makes our lives so much easier and they're the best clients to partner with, um, because you have a true collaborative relationship with those clients. And then, you know, some that are sort of like in the middle that, uh, they are at least on the journey. They're trying to learn, they're trying to do things differently. And then, you know, there's, you know, thankfully we do a pretty good job screening on the front end with, with CEOs to see where their mindset's at. And and we ask some very pointed, direct questions like, you know, this is what it means to be a lean CEO. Are you ready to do these things X, Y, and Z? And if not, you know, why not? Right. So we're trying to see where their head's at. And there are clients we just don't work with because of, of how that 
dialogue goes because we know what that's going to look like, you know, and, and it's, it's not that we don't like them. It's just, we're just not a fit for each other. Sure. So, not bad. More like Maybe. a vendor versus a, a partner. Right. 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 Well, I'm glad you clarified single digit percentage. That's less bleak than a single digit count of them. Five <laughs> percent, um, Mark. If you want to hold me to a five percent, percent, throw a number out there. Yeah. Um. It's, yeah, it's one of those unknowable numbers, but yeah, I'm sure you're you're directionally correct. But you know, art book or art book art burn. One of his books, see, I associate him now with the book. I call him Art, Art Book. Art Burns, one of, one of his books was called The Lean Turnaround. And, and that book, I think, was absolutely intended, you know, for, for CEO readers to tell them, like, you know, at the more detailed level, here's what a lean CEO does. And I would love to find out. I'm sure he would, too. Maybe he's gotten feedback, hopefully. How many CEOs or wannabe CEOs have read that book versus lean facilitators and lean consultants and, and, and others. Um, but, you know, I, he, he took a good swing at it and he continues to share his lessons and his experiences. So always appreciated. You know, it's, it's, it's weird. It's like lean. I liken a lot to, to uh, losing weight. <laughs> so there's some, some, some analogies here, right? So if I ask you, Mark, um, how do you lose weight? You know, the answer, right? Gosh, I mean, we know what to do, right? But it, you know, that that may, yeah. uh, eat two, better, two, eat better, yeah. eat less, exercise better, exercise yeah. more. It's like two right? things, right? It's diet and exercise. I mean, not knowledge doesn't translate into action. Always. So, so there's, you know, if you were to ask everybody in the world that question, most people would give you the answer. And I think lean is similar in a regard. It's like these are common sense things. And yeah, we know that it makes sense to eliminate waste, and we know that it makes sense to do all these things. But why is it so dang hard? Because it requires discipline and behavior change and and commitment and accountability. And it, those are all things that we suck at in our, our daily lives, let alone our business lives, right? So, you know, there's a type of person that fits a lean culture. And those are disciplined people. And you know, Danner, we used to call them, we look for insecure overachievers. That was one of the criteria, you know. Find insecure overachievers. They're disciplined. They continually stretch themselves. They're driven. Uh, they sort of run to problems. They run to pain, if you will. <laughs> uh, but that, you know, it's, it's it's not the whole world, and therefore the whole world will not be Toyota, you know, because of that fact. Yeah, not every company in Japan is Toyota. Uh, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's an important lesson. Yeah. First time I went to Toyota, I was like, oh, I can't wait or, uh, to Japan. I can't wait to see all these lean companies in Japan. And uh, we went to the, all these companies. And I'm like, what? <laughs> these were, you know, these were horrible. It's like you thought this was like lean nirvana. And it was it was nothing. It was just like the, the U.S. You know, you got average companies and mm-hmm. above average and a few world class. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to generalize. And as your experience shows, and I've had some opportunity to work in other countries, I think it's it's less about national culture and it's more about company culture. Where you can have, um, you, you, you know, Toyota has been successful in other company in other countries. Just as as one clear example, I think they weren't sure at first. You know, when they came into America, there was a experiment called Numi, and um, they're here to stay. I get asked this question from time to time. I'd be curious to hear your response to it. So. Um, I'll get asked, are there certain countries that 
would have an easier time of doing this. You know, if they're to implement a lean business system way of thinking, are there certain countries because of their society and their norms and their values that uh, adopt this quicker or easier than maybe the U.S. or or Germany, as an example? How would you answer that question? I don't know. I mean, there's only one country that I've really grown up in and lived in. I mean, it's pretty damn hard to do this in the United States. I mean, is that because of national culture? I mean, like rugged individualism, does that cause a problem? But I've seen a lot of companies where you have an amazing team environment, right? So um, is it a matter of hiring people who share your values and mindset and approach to things? I, I mean, I'm, it sounds like a cop out, but like it's hard to generalize. I mean, what I've learned about Japan is for every reason you could point to of why this would be, quote unquote, easier here, they can point to another problem about why it might be more challenging. Right. Yeah. You might say like, oh, well, go to stores and people who wrap up uh, something that you purchase, they follow such a disciplined routine. Look at that. It's standard work. Hooray. But that same organization might not encourage Kaizen. Right. So this is kind of, you know, generalizing this Japanese um, mindset of harmony and and don't make waves. And you might not speak up unless you have a company that really goes out of its way to encourage it. So those are just two things I'd say, well, it's easier because of this general generality and it's harder, you know, because of that. But I really think it's up to the company. Yeah. Yeah. And and I agree with you. And I I think it, it makes for interesting, you know, fireside conversation, but you know, it, we'll probably never know. And, and and everything that we point to, we'll find an exception to, no matter what country we're talking about. Right. Because um, again, like Toyota has been successful in many continents, in many different settings. And, um, you know, they, you know, so uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, I would rather try to steer people away from that and think about what culture are you building or what culture are you changing, you know, depending on, are you a greenfield or a brownfield? Are you a startup versus a hundred-year-old company? All right. But yeah, gosh, there are many, many, many things we could talk about, if not um, uh, debate. But you know, I want, I want to ask a couple other things uh, for you, Damon, and, and and this has been fun. So maybe we can do this again sometime. You know, tell tell us first a little bit about Lean Focus. I mean, you, you mentioned the search part of the business. What are the other things that that you and the firm do? Yeah, so we have a, a consulting practice, and in the consulting practice, we're using what we refer to as our Lean Focus Business System, the three-letter acronym LBS, and uh, it's comprised of a growth toolbox, which is more your front-end sales, marketing, R&D, and so on, uh, and then we have consultants that specialize in that area, and they would have been, in industry, they would have been people that led those functions or would have led P&Ls inside of companies, so they've been practitioners in that regard. And we have a more traditional lean consulting practice within that, which these folks would have been VPs of operations, um, uh, leading plants and factories and so on. And there's a lean toolbox. And then we have a leadership practice, which is more people systems. So talent succession planning, um, mission, vision, values, performance appraisal process, organ talent design, that kind of stuff. And those, those three practices come together when we partner with the client to create really an enterprise-wide transformation. So again, we're trying to get away clients away from this idea that lean is this shop floor focused activity and that it's more of an integrated set of tools and systems that work together to drive value creation inside of a company. 
So that's what the consulting practice does. And we've got about 30 people that do that. And then we've got the search practice, which you already mentioned. And for those same clients that we're partnering with on the consulting side, we're, we're uncovering talent needs either because there are vacancies in the company that need to be filled. And when they want to fill them, they want to fill them with lean-minded talent that can accelerate this rate of change and adoption and culture and things like that. And then we help design new organizations because many of these companies that we're working with don't have the structure of the organization to support this going forward. So we design it and then fill those those roles all the way from the CEO of the business we've placed uh, down to manager director level and everything in between. Common thread being they've worked in, have experience with, and can facilitate and, and drive change using this type of thinking. Then the third part of our business and last part of our business is, is learning solutions. So we'll actually license our tools. So if a company is interested in creating their own business system and they don't want to spend years and millions of dollars working with subject matter experts to create all this stuff and have it all work together. They can license our stuff. We put their logos on it and so on. Uh, it's a business system out of the box. And they can also avoid the intellectual property challenges of you know people coming from other places. Mm, like, right. oh, when I worked at Toyota, here's what we did. Uh, I worked at... Right. Um, and there's too much of that, unfortunately, going on around the world. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if yeah. legal teams knew about would probably lose yeah. sleep tonight. So yeah. that's the three parts of what we do. So leanfocus.com is the website. I encourage people to um to to go uh check out the site. Um the lean focus business. So I got to pick down you, Damon. That's four letters and you made it a, or four words and you made it a three letter acronym. <laughs> Always trying to eliminate waste, Mark. <laughs> it's like the, the, the Toyota family changing the name of the company to Toyota, right? You have some leeway reducing waste. In it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, the uh, F is silent. <laughs> right. Um, well, thank you, Damon. So, Hey, I'm going to ask you, um, cause you know, there's so many, things that we we got in here and uh, talked about today I didn't leave time to really ask you about the private equity work if you're okay with that let's let's do some time in an episode talking about lean and private equity the differences the yeah. differences in private equity company approaches and there's something that you've introduced me to called the ownership works initiative that mm -hmm. um, I I think if, if it's all right with you let let's let's do another yeah. discussion just about all of that it's great look forward to it all of that and whatever else we end up bearing into, we can. Uh, boy, we, I, I, I jotted down, but we we won't get into. This is peop, something people love debating online. Um, lean versus theory of constraints, gold rat versus Ono. Oh uh, it's just a lot of arguing, but we yeah. can we can have the differences a, a, between lean and Six Sigma. <laughs> you know, I see that chart on everybody's LinkedIn. <laughs> and a lot of that is back to the point of what I'll call the bad lean Six Sigma books. You know, or it's a bad introduction to lean when they say. Here's final question and get your reaction to this. When people say lean is all about speed and Six Sigma is for quality. That's it's nonsense. That's all that needs to be said. So, uh, Damon Baker has been our guest again here today. Damon, thank you so much for, for being a guest. It's been a lot of fun. Great to hear your insights and your stories and a lot of great stuff here today. Thanks again. Thank you, Mark. Look forward to it again. Take care. Okay. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org.
If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.